Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Out podcast. Today, as you can tell from friend of the show, William Wallace's brief cameo, we are talking about freedom. This is the fourth in a five-part series talking about church and state. We are going to be giving you a massively, obnoxiously large primary source quote in the form of reading all of Dignitates Humanae and, and kind of do, giving some comments along the way that relate to freedom vis-a-vis -vis the state and vis-a-vis the church. And of course, things like conscience are going to come up. And the dispute from the rad trads to the to the rest of us, um, well, that's going to come up too, because this particular document has been criticized as a possible reversal in magisterial teachings. And I think that is not the case. And I will be defending what Dignitates Humanae says. This is um, the first time I've really engaged with this particular doctor, uh, document. Um, so you're kind of along the ride with me, but I have prepared a couple notes here and there, and uh, I think you're in for some good stuff. So without any further ado, we have a ton to read and a massive amount to cover, so let's dig right in. First paragraph. A sense of the dignity of the human person has been impressed has been impressing itself more and more deeply on the consciousness of contemporary man, and the demand is increasingly made that men should act on their own judgment, enjoying and making use of a responsible freedom, not driven by coercion, but motivated by a sense of duty. First thing I think we need to keep in mind is that it talks about not just any type of freedom, but a responsible freedom. Responsible, meaning this is a freedom, yes, and we'll later learn that religious liberty is a right, but that comes with certain duties. So we are responsible to fulfill something in light of the fact that we have this freedom. So keep your eye out for what exactly we're going to have to do with this freedom. What is the responsibility of freedom? Also, I want to point out that it's using the term freedom in a more familiar sense. Oftentimes, you, if you've been a Catholic for a bit, you've heard that freedom is actually the freedom to do the good, freedom to choose rightly, freedom to do things which are perfective according to what type of being you are. It relates to your nature. So the freedom of a tree to grow tall, to send out leaves. So that's free, and an unfree tree would be the one that doesn't leaf. A free human being would be one that worships, that uses the rational intellect, that wills the good, that loves others, etc., one that's less free can do less things which ought to accord with their nature, which ought to properly arrange the hierarchy of goods, to love truth, you know, all that stuff. But this isn't exactly the type of freedom that we're talking about here. And we have a big clue. Well, it's not even a clue. It just tells us that it's also a freedom, meaning the absence of coercion. And that's really what we mean in the modern context by freedom. Most people, Joe, Joe Smo on the street, when he says freedom, doesn't mean it in the Thomistic sense. He means instead that there are a variety of options on offer, and we are not under coercion to choose one of these options. We may freely, without coercion, choose a variety of different options. So pay attention, those who are more... Um, in the Catholic literature, that it is not using exactly the Thomistic sense of freedom. And I think that's a lot of the confusion which is going on. Um, the church has said before that you don't have freedom to sin, right? And that makes perfect sense when we're talking about the type of freedom, which is the ability to choose the good. It would just violate the very term freedom itself in that Thomistic concept. But this is the absence of coercion when you are presented with a variety of choices, right? So, bit of a difference here, 
we need to take note. Um, however, I wouldn't say that the Thomistic idea of freedom is entirely absent of this, and in part because it talks about that sense of duty, um, that we are motivated, we ought to be motivated by a sense of duty, right? Um, so duty would relate to the things that we ought to do. That's a teleological claim, that we have things which we ought to do. And teleology implies that we are of some type of nature. So we're kind of swinging back to the um, to the Thomistic idea, but um, I think it's including a bit of both, leaning on the first, next paragraph. The demand is likewise made that constitutional limits should be set to the powers of government in order that there be no encroachment on the rightful freedom of the person and of associations. This demand for freedom in human society chiefly regards the quest for the values proper to the human spirit. And there I think we do see this bit of a synergy between the two. So it's absence of coercion, it's a quest, so we're going out in the midst of these many options, and we're looking for the values which are proper to the human spirit, okay? In regards, in the first place, the free exercise of religion in society. A couple things to point out here. I really like this language of rightful freedom now. So we don't just have the language earlier about um, the, uh, the type of freedom which in involves a sense of duty, um, but we also get the rights language. So rights involve duties and vice versa, right? And we often don't think about freedom being rightful. Uh, ironically enough, those on the furthest side of the Catholic right often want to reduce freedom, not seeing freedom in and of itself as rightful. And those all the way on the left, particularly the secular left, want to curtail freedoms, and they don't see freedom as rightful. But here the church does. It uses this language of a rightful freedom, and I think we're going to learn a little bit more about what exactly that means along the way. So, when it's sketching out the idea that humans, as these dignified creatures, have certain rights, and one of these is freedom, I think what it's saying is that there's a proper place for our action. And there's a proper place for our development. So a baby has a right to, say, the womb of his or her mother. They have a proper expectation that this environment will be provided so that they can grow and develop. And we have a right and proper expectation to a free society so that we can grow and develop as good lovers and truth seekers so that we can pattern Jesus, who grew in wisdom and in knowledge, who took on a real human will and therefore invested ours with a supernatural dignity. Now, religion, which is the subject of this entire discourse we're reading, literally means, etymologically refers to a reconnection or a binding back onto. Specifically, this would be a binding back onto God. How? Well, obviously through the person of Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, specifically because of his dual nature. And what difference does his dual nature make? Well, the fathers famously assert that what is not assumed was not saved. And thankfully, he assumed a full human nature complete with a real human will. Cough, cough, William Lane Craig. Cough, cough, cough. Don't fall for monothelitism, guys. So, in part, we can root the rightfulness, the goodness, the dignity of freedom in the fact that Jesus himself 
was penultimately free, penultimately, right word? No, no, ultimately, there you go, ultimately free. And he had his freedom because he took onto himself a real human will. He set himself in a real human society. He grew in wisdom and knowledge, and he occupied the rightful place for a full human right, uh, life, which is an environment of freedom so that we can learn to choose the good and love the true. Next paragraph. This Vatican Council takes careful notes on the desires in the minds of men. It proposes to declare them to be greatly in accord with truth and justice. To this end, it searches into the sacred tradition and doctrine of the church, the treasury out of which the church continually brings forth new things that are in harmony with the things that are old. This last line, I think, is vitally important and really is a key to a lot of this whole shebang. It is a callback to a section in Matthew 13, which we are going to dive into in depth with the help of a few church fathers. So for those of you who are still out of the loop, I mentioned earlier there are people who think that this is a magisterial reversal, and um, yeah, I think we're going to find that's not true. Check John DeRosa's Classical Theism podcast channel, um, his conversation with Michael Dunnigan, and another one which I forgot that is also on there covers this, covers it in depth, and I think there's some really great solutions to the proposed problem. But here, I am going to be digging into this scriptural allusion and shedding light on this whole debate as best as I can. Recall, it just said, the church is bringing forth things which are new as well as old. Matthew 13, verse 52 says, after Jesus asks of these parables that we're about to dig into, have you understood all these things? And the disciples say, yes, they replied. And he said to them, there are four. So, in light of the parables which we need to understand, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So why is the document referencing this bringing out the new and bringing out the old? Well, this section of scripture here, if you look at that, assumes that you not only heard, but you also understood the three preceding parables. So I don't think I'm necessarily jumping to the conclusion that this document, by bringing up this passage, also assumes that you understand these three vital parables. So let's try to understand them. Oh, funny enough, they're actually, if you're listening to this on the day it came out, like all good people should, tomorrow. Um, these parables are the Sunday readings, so what a lovely coincidence. Okay, this is picking up in verse 44 of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it back up onto the shore. When they sat down and collected the good fish in the baskets, they threw the bad away. 
This is how it will be at the end of the age. The, a- the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. And then we get the treasury of the good and the old. So I ask you, dear listener, did you understand those parables? Do you understand this? Because this is vital to the discussion. We have to understand this. Well, um, in the first case, the well, here are a few interpretive keys that I think we can apply to each one of these scenarios. One, the kingdom of heaven is the church. Next, the treasure is Jesus himself. Also, the pearl of great price is Jesus. The fish are people in the world. The sea or the lake, depending on the translation, that's the world. And the fish sorters are, we're told, angels. So in case one, the treasure. Notice there is a space for searching a field so that there's an opportunity for finding. And when he finds, he sells everything he has to have this treasure, to have Jesus. I also note this is prior to Christ's death. And I think it's prophetic of his resurrection because those listening are those on this field who have found a great treasure. They're looking at him. They're looking at Jesus. He is the treasure. He's amongst the dust of mankind. And then Christ goes into the earth like that treasure does and then becomes theirs when he comes back out of the earth, giving himself to them. There's another way to read this, which I think is as good, maybe better. It comes from St. Jerome. He sees an incarnational angle where God conceals his divinity in our humanity, thus hiding the treasure in the dust of the earth. But no, we have the time of searching. We're going through this field and then we happen upon it. We recognize its value. We sell everything we have and then it is ours. Case two, the pearls. So the merchant is actively looking for valuable pearls. Again, it begins the parable with searching, uh, just like the last guy. And the lesser pearls represent other good figures in history, other great teachers. They could represent the law and the prophets, things which are indeed good, things, people who have some value. Now, if you don't believe me that this is a great explanation for this parable, let me quote good old St. Augustine, who, commenting on this specific passage, says, Or a man seeking goodly pearls has found one pearl of great price. That is, he who is seeking good men with whom he may live profitably finds one alone, Christ Jesus without sin. Or seeking precepts of life by the aid of which he may dwell righteously among men finds love of his neighbor, in which one rule. And Jerome comments saying that these pearls are representative of the law and the prophets. So then, after looking through the law, looking through the prophets, looking through, as Augustine would put it, the um, good men who we can live profitably with, after looking through precepts of life, which could aid us in dwelling righteously among men, we ultimately find the pearl of great price, Jesus. And the proper response here we see in the parable is get rid of everything else, sell everything else. It's not that it's not valuable, it's just it's nothing compared to the pearl of great price. Case three, fishing. The church, it says the kingdom of God, is the net. So the church is the net that sinks into the darkness of the deep to draw out men from the world. 
And listen, the church indeed draws people out of the water and into the church. That's what baptism is, right? But not all who are baptized will be good fish. Some in the church will be cast out in the end. So we draw out good fish, and we also draw monsters out of the deep and into our church. And we've seen these monsters. And look again, we have searching. In this case, plunging into the dark, plunging into the chaos, relying on divine providence, right? The treasure just made itself present to it. The fish, we didn't tell the water to teem with fish. God did. Nobody in the parable created a pearl. Nobody in these parables um, made the treasure and put it in the field. This is God's action that we then discover because we plunge into the chaos. We are searching. And then when we find, we react by properly understanding that this is the most valuable thing of all. So, um, have you understood all these things? Jesus asks. Well, what things? What was repeated again and again and again? Here's the things which Jesus would want us to understand. One, we are treasure hunters. Two, we are pearl seekers. Three, we are those who plunge into the dark to seek after the lost. Therefore, he goes on to say, we are to bring out new treasures as well as old. So what's the old and the new? Well, the old is searching in the field. The old is combing through the pearls. The old is plunging into the depths. The old is the journey to God. The old is the history of searching, the responsible exercising of your freedom, in the words of Dignitates Humanis, moved by your duty as a truth seeker. Each one of these people were active in their duty of seeking. And what's the new? Well, the new is the treasure, the pearl, the saved soul, the final place of rest when drawn up onto the banks of our eternal shore. St. Hilary, St. Jerome. St. Gregory and St. Augustine all see a parallel to the Old and New Testament. And what is the Old Testament but the story of the journey to meet the Messiah? And what is the New? It's the unveiling. It's the finding of the treasure himself. And St. Gregory reminds us, and I quote, but what is said here may be understood as meant not of those who had been, but of such as might hereafter be in the church, who then bring forth things new and old when they speak the preachings of both testaments in their words and in their lives. In our lives, we are meant to speak of the old and the New Testament reality. We are meant to seek and we are meant to find. So let's give a few examples of what that might look like. Um, The modern Jewish person, they are explicitly combing through the pearls of the law and the prophets, just like we had um, Jerome talk about the law and the prophets being these lesser pearls. They're meant to seek and ultimately find the pearl of great price. How about all those people who are looking into stoicism and other precepts of life that they can latch onto so that they can live well in common with others, just like St. Augustine says, seeking good men with whom they could profitably live. Um, Well, they're looking through pearls. This is good. This is the old. We hope they find the new. God himself will reveal himself to them if they do this duty and do this duty well. Another example of somebody who's searching through the pearls, who's uh, walking, digging in the field, 
is good old Jordan Peterson. I mean, this guy is even writing a book called We Who Wrestle With God. Wrestling with God is a good thing. And it's a good thing in that old way. It's an old treasure. It's the old that we bring out, this wrestling with God. It's really the definitive thing of the Old Testament. It's the wrestling with God. It's why God gives the name Israel to his people in the Old Testament, which means literally one who wrestles with God. This is the Old Testament reality, the wrestling, the searching. The New Testament reality is the finding. It's the having. Do you understand these things? Well, the document assumes that you do by calling to mind this specific passage and by using this the meaning of drawing things out old and new. So with all of this in mind, let's go back to the document. First, the council professes its belief that God himself has made known to mankind the way in which men are to serve him and thus be saved in Christ and come to blessedness. We believe that this one true religion subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church to which the Lord Jesus committed the duty of spreading it abroad among all men. Thus he spoke to the apostles, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have enjoined upon you. On their part, all men are bound to seek the truth, especially in what concerns God and his church, and to embrace the truth they come to know, and to hold it fast. Note how this mirrors exactly each one of these parables. Each one of those is bound, bound even by their own conscience, by the movement of their own will upon finding the truth, to sell everything they have for the pearl of great price, to sell everything they have to get the to get that feel, to embrace the truth that they've come to know, to know it as treasure, to hold fast to it. This is the vision of Dignitatis Humanae. That is the vision of Jesus Christ. The Vatican Council likewise professes its beliefs that it is upon the human conscience that these obligations fall and exert their binding force. The truth cannot impose itself except by virtue of its own truth as it makes its entrance into the mind at once quietly and with power. Religious freedom, in turn, which men demand as necessary to fulfill, necessary to fulfill the duty to worship God, has to do with immunity from coercion in civil society. Therefore, it leaves untouched traditional Catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies towards the true religion and towards the one church of Christ. Now, right up earlier, one of these lines we read is the one of the most controversial lines um, in the work of Dunnigan, and others have dealt with it in depth. But here's what I see in this so-called controversial passage, right, um, talking about religious freedom and whatnot, I see that there's an affirmation of the true religion is the Catholic and Apostolic Church. Fact check true. We are to spread the gospel truth. Yes. All men are bound to seek the truth. Yes. All men are bound to embrace the truth they come to know. Yes. All men are bound to hold fast to the truth. Yes. These obligations fall on the human conscience and have a binding force. Mm-hmm. Religious freedom is 
demanded as necessary to fulfill the duty to worship God. Yes, read the Exodus story. We'll get to some of that. Okay, so um, yeah, we do require this type of freedom in order to fulfill our duty to worship God. Otherwise, you're not actually bringing out the old and the new. You're saying, well, screw the old. We're not going to do that. We're not going to worship God using our history of searching. We're not going to bring this out as part of the gospel story. No, we're not going to be those who wrestle with God. We're going to be those who are expected to somehow be angels, to somehow have already chosen the right. But that's not how it works. Even Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge, and we ought to as well. He invested this process of moving through a free moral space. He did it well. He did it perfectly. But he invested this process itself with enormous dignity, one which ought to be afforded to every free human person. All right, so those who deny that a space for freedom to search the field, the pearls, and descend into the sea are denying the words of Christ. I would ask them the question, those who see a deep incongruity between what we have read and the words of the magisterium from before, do you really understand these things? Do you understand the parables? Do you understand that that callback? Do you understand our nature as dignified truth seekers, fans of the good? I would say to them, go back to the parables with this in mind. We as incarnate beings make a series of choices for and against the good, the true, the noble, and are therefore not like angels, and we cannot be expected to be governed like angels. So to deny us freedom to exercise our intellect and will in this material world is denying us our proper environment. It's like denying a fish water. It's like denying a baby a womb. All right, I think I've driven this home pretty well. Um, Yeah, Catechism says that Jesus' whole life was saving. This includes his entire history. And that means that when it's applied in us, our whole life becomes saving when it's linked to Christ's. And that includes our history of seeking. And that culminates in us finding. So, Is immunity from coercion in civil society good? Um, Because it said that there should be a type of immunity from coercion in civil society. I would say, yes, that is good. And if you just threw a dart at the history of Catholicism, I think you, you would probably find a time where you would prefer that we have a large immunity from coercion in civil society for the religious than one that we don't have that. There are precious few times where we had a, say, truly Catholic state. Most of the time, we ought to ask for toleration of religious people so that we can be active in society, not under coercion, ready to free people from sin, to transform hearts, to unveil the sacraments to a world which... um, will hopefully be ready to receive them and be transformed by the power of Christ in them. All right. So I'd say that's good. I'd say that's clearly good. Immunity from coercion in civil society. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, I'm going to say that for those who want to insist that there's a break from the tradition of the church, um, I don't think that's the intention of the passage. And the reason I don't think that's the intention of the passage my dear sweet rad trans who may or may not be listening because the passage says therefore it leaves untouched traditional catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies towards the true religion and towards the one church of christ 
I don't think it could be much clearer that is not trying to break continuity with what has gone before. It says it leaves untouched the traditional Catholic doctrine and the moral duty of men's societies towards true religion and the church. All right. I think we're on to, I think we're on to the next section. Over and above all of this, the council intends to develop the doctrine of recent popes on the inviolable rights of the human person and the constitutional order of society. This Vatican Council declares that the human person has a right to religious freedom. This freedom means that all men are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups and of any human power, in such wise that no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others, within due limits. <coughs> cough, cough. Within due limits, guys. Seriously, I think this is this is pretty great. Um, it's not saying that anything your conscience says goes. It says within due limits. Um, but it is trying to carve out a space, a space of freedom, a space of freedom so that we can have a real human journey to find the treasure, which is Jesus Christ. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, let's talk a little bit about why the freedom from coercion with respect to one's convictions and movements of conscience is important. Here's why. And first, I'm going to have to sketch out a little bit about the unforgivable sin. When you read about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin, you see that the people Jesus is talking to have flipped the categories of good and evil. They believe that when they witness the work of Christ, it's actually the work of demons. So they're entirely wrong in their categories of good and evil. And this presents an entirely difficult, awful conundrum that can only be exited by a miracle of grace. Why? Because let's say you see the good as evil and the evil is good. Well, in order to make a true, morally good action, you have to intend the good and then do the good. But if you flipped these categories, then if you intend the good and you flipped good and evil, then you do the evil. Wow, that's not a good act. So if you ever tried to do a good act, like say, follow God, repent, love your neighbor, all sorts of good acts. If you flip the categories of good and evil, you can never align objectively good things with a good intention. So how do you get out of this? Well, one way is we can try to... Um, uh, try to explain to you the categories of good and evil that can be fruitful. But again, even Jesus doing miracles in front of them was not enough to convince their intellects that actually he was God, that actually he was good. Instead, it pushed them even further into evil. Instead, what I think Dignitatis Humanae might suggest, and I think it does later on, is that the first move in salvation from this deep and abiding awful sin, or from sin as general, is actually a move of the will. God asks first for your free cooperation from your will. And that's the start of all of our salvation story because it's the start of the gospel story where Mary's free, absent of coercion, Yes to God is how the gospel story kicks off. And in our lives, the gospel story will also kick off with a yes to God. Cardinal Newman 
calls the conscience the aboriginal vicar of Christ. So even in the depths of sin, there is a call from Christ's own voice through conscience, a conscience that we may have warped or muted or in some way violated, but nevertheless is there. And the first step out of deep depravity and sin is a movement to accept the voice as well as you hear it, the voice ringing from God through conscience to say yes to God where he can be found. And if we've flipped the categories of good and evil, and I hope you have not, then by following at least the voice of conscience, we're in a good ground for hope that a miracle of grace by God will then act to sort out our intellect, to drop the scales from our eyes so that we can have an intellect that truthfully presents things to our will. And then our will is disposed to choose the good. Next paragraph. The council further declares, did I even make my point? Anyways, <laughs> whatever point I was making. Next paragraph, we have so much to read. The council further declares that the right to religious freedom has its foundation in the very dignity of the human person, as this dignity is known through the revealed word of God and by reason itself. This right of the human person to religious freedom is to be recognized in the constitutional law whereby society is governed and thus is to become a civil right. Now, some people think that this is somehow a capitulation to, to liberalism, uh, to the idea, the modern idea of a separation of church and state, like the modern conception, but I don't think that's true. Others have taken this passage as some type of denial of the goodness of a Catholic state, the, the idea that it precludes a Catholic state, but I don't think that's true. What I see is that it says that we have freedom, meaning we have the ability to choose absence of coercion, right? And the ability to choose the good by habit in a way that can befit our nature. That's what we've heard so far. So it seems that a Catholic state could exist and thrive while promoting the true faith, placing due limits on the religious practices of others. Is that a condemnation of the Catholic state? No, it seems that they're only borrowing, borrowing doing things which ought not to be done anyway, like violating the dignity of people as truth seekers, closing down the space for seeking truth, or mandating that one acts against their conscience, which I think is wrong and is indeed the very first step in saying yes to God and beginning your own gospel story. So I don't think that this or other passages we've read are an attack on Catholic states or really even limit the power of a, of a state to promote um, a good, proper, uh, religious populace. I, I don't think at all. Um, all right, well, let's keep on going. In, it, is, it is in accordance with their dignity as persons, that is, beings endowed with reason and will, and therefore privileged to bear personal responsibility that all men should be at once impelled by nature and also bound by a moral obligation to seek the truth, especially religious truth. They are also bound to adhere to the truth once it is known and to order their whole lives in accord with the demands of the truth. However, men cannot discharge these obligations in a manner in keeping with their own nature unless they enjoy immunity from external coercion 
as well as psychological freedom. Therefore, the right to religious freedom has its foundation not in the subjective disposition of the person, but in his very nature. In consequence, the right to this immunity continues to exist even in those who do not live up to their obligation of seeking the truth and adhering to it. And the exercise of this right is not to be impeded, provided that just public order be observed. Just public order, we have another provision. This is not just universal. It's not whatever anything anybody thinks goes. It's also not based on the subjective disposition of the person but based on their nature. It's not saying anything that anybody happens to believe, will, or think is their conscience goes. It's not. This is a, a liberty, yes. This is a freedom, mm-hmm. It ought to be protected, absolutely. But it must be curtailed when public order is at stake. And it must be rooted not in subjective dispositions, but instead in the nature of the person who we've learned is somebody who has a moral obligation to seek the truth, and when they find it, love the truth and conform their lives to it. All of this is excellent. Further light is shed on the subject if one considers that the highest norm of human life is the divine law, eternal, objective, and universal, whereby God orders, directs, and governs the entire universe and all the ways of the human community by a plan conceived in wisdom and love. Man has been made by God to participate in this law, with the result that under the gentle disposition of divine providence, he can come to perceive ever more fully the truth, truth that is unchanging. Wherefore, every man has the duty, and therefore the right to seek the truth in matters religious in order that he may with prudence form for himself right and true judgments of conscience under use of all suitable means. So rights and duties fundamentally linked. Um, I'm going to take a brief break here and then we're going to talk about what the role of law is because it seems like we're pivoting into um, the role of law. So Paul talks about the law as a pedagogue or a school teacher, as sometimes it's rendered. And there's a number of things which law does, one of which is exactly this. It teaches, and particularly for people with no religious tradition, it's often just civil law. That's their guide to virtue. You commonly hear secular people say, oh, well, it's not illegal. Well, I, okay, I, I guess it at least is a minimum teacher for moral behavior. So it does indeed teach, though we need more than just civil law to be virtuous. We would need a higher law, a divine law, to actually give us a guide to the good moral life. But it trains our intellects. It teaches us different patterns of behavior vis-a-vis vis others and divine law vis-a-vis -vis even God. So it trains our habits so that we can act for the good by habit, making us more free in that very Thomistic kind of way, that we become free for the good, that we do the good by habit, that virtue is ultimately the, the height of freedom. And that is true. But 
Law also does other things, like barring off the possibility of destructive activities, protecting us and the community at large. So in this way, it becomes a tool, a tool for the promotion of the common good. And that is really what law is principally. It is a tool, tool of teaching, tool of protection, tool of training, etc. But you've... uh, You've probably heard all of that stuff before. What I want to focus in on a bit is that law is also an aspirational standard of conduct, which is meant to be in the zone of proximal moral development. So you've heard the zone of proximal development. It's, um, let's see, in weightlifting, you try to lift something a little heavier to where you're at, and that's going to give you the most growth. When you're learning something, you look for something that's just a little above your level, And that's going to give you the most intellectual growth. Well, when it comes to the moral life, we need something which is a bit aspirational, just a smidgen higher than we think is actually our level. That's the zone of proximal development morally. And that's where laws are meant to be. Laws are meant to be just a smidge higher than the regular run-of-the-mill virtue of the citizenry. It's meant to be in the zone of proximal moral development. And I think this makes sense of certain puzzles in the Old Testament. Why are certain things permitted? Well, it's because law has to be within reach. Something that people say, that looks good. I would like to be able to do that. It's going to be hard. Just like benching that extra, I don't know, 20 pounds you want to put on the bar. Now, this is the sense in which I think that law derives its power from the consent of the governed. It's not that it's just whatever the will of the people is somehow rubber stamps law. No. I think that it's only effective when it's in the zone of proximal moral development. That's the sense in which we know it is a good law at the right point when people want to consent to this law. And that's exactly what we see in Exodus 24, 3, when Moses went down to the people and repeated all the instructions and regulations the Lord had given them, and all the people answered with one voice, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. So likewise, in the state and in the church, we need the consent of the governed, meaning we need to put something which the governed believe is good up, hold it up in law, and ask them to reach up for this morally. So if the mass of the people would simply just trample on, disobey the law, well, then they might not be ready for that law yet. We would have to proceed more gradually. Famously, both Augustine and Aquinas argued against having prostitution be illegal. They knew very well that it was a mortal sin, but... They believed that if it were removed from the world, the world would, quote, convulse with lust. Let me give you another argument, which I think is maybe a little bit more, mm, got some oomph than the world will convulse with lust. So I'm going to defend these two guys briefly, and I hope that illuminates how exactly we use law, how exactly that increases freedom, and um, yeah, all that good stuff. So at the time, their society was different than ours. We have a massive amount of broken homes, and we also have a large amount of young, unmarried people who are not kids. They are full-grown adults and yet unmarried. They didn't have that. So basically, if you're going to go and, say, commit adultery, 
Your choices are somebody too young and not yet married, or somebody married, or somebody old and widowed. So presumably you're not going for somebody who's not an adult. You're not going for somebody who's super old. So that means really the only options are people who are already married. Because historically speaking, everybody old enough to be married gets married. At which point your drive of lust not just messes up your own family, but it also messes up somebody else's family. So two families are deeply damaged and the common good is attacked. So I think that this is what they're reacting to. They're realizing that if you have prostitution legal, and I'm not arguing for prostitution legal in our society, I think it's very different. It should absolutely be um, condemned, and I think they would condemn it in our time too. But in their time, they could have been looking at the effect on the common good and realizing it would have broken multiple families. Whereas if this person did the same act of adultery, yet with a prostitute, well, only one family is damaged and then the, the prostitute is damaged also. But at least it's not ripping the families, the very beginning of all society, apart. And Proverbs says something interesting that I'm going to show certainly backs up Aquinas and Augustine on this and shows the role of, of law at times. Proverbs says um, that uh, this commandment is a lamp onto your feet. This teaching is a light and correction and instruction are the way to life, keeping you from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread. But another man's wife preys on your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without burning his clothes? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will be unpunished. People do not despise its thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yet if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great. So the point is not that prostitution is okay in this passage. It's not. The point is that the effect of the same sin towards one person versus another is wildly different. They say you could have just paid a, the price of bread and screwed up your life through prostitution, but instead you're going to pay the, the, the cost of your life when an angry husband comes and kills you. So, um, the only real good reason to allow certain sins to not prohibit things which are bad are that a worse thing will come about. So I think Augustine and Aquinas are envisioning the destruction of homes, the, sure, retaliation of husbands. Proverbs is saying that, well, we're choosing between prostitution and a cycle of murder and death. <laughs> Darn it. Um, I guess go for the, the less bad one if you're going to be an idiot. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that law in this case has to be in the zone of proximal moral development. If we push too hard, well, then we're, we might end up with something worse. 
And that's what we have to keep in mind. Another example would be what Jesus talks about with divorce. Jesus, what was it, Matthew 19? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Some have suggested that Moses permitted divorce. Why? Because it was ultimate? No, 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 no. He permitted divorce because the only way to get out of a marriage when there was no such thing as a divorce was if your spouse died. And there's some evidence, I have to source this for you. Anyways, there is some evidence to show that this was actually a problem, that men would become unhappy with their wives and murder them, kill them. I mean, this is not the same rule of law that we have today, right? Um, it's not like they're just going to use fingerprints and cameras. It's pretty anonymous back then. So people could kill their wives and say she just expired of something and then marry another. So the law is backed down from where it should be, where Jesus puts it back to, to something that's at least within grasp for the people. Because if they kept it at that higher moral standard, it would be ignored, and then we'll go to a worse position. Just like we have murder in the first case of of people um, committing adultery. So, let me give you an analogy. The Gospels are full of fishing analogies, and we have a bit of a fishing theme today, I suppose. So, um, the disciples told to be fishers of men. And here's how. Well, actually, we're all meant to be fishers of men. Here's how fishing works. You present a good thing to the fish, the bait. And when it bites, you now have to balance the way that you draw the fish closer. If you're too gentle, well, he'll never come in. If you never reel him in, if you never pull him into the boat, well, that's it. (laughs) You're not going to get a fish. He might even just spit out the bait, like, yeah, whatever. He might just consume the bait and move on. Um, The hook may never even set into his mouth and really prick the proverbial conscience of a man or set into the mouth of the fish if you don't pull, if you don't draw in. But if you reel a fish in too hard, you could actually rip the bait out of his mouth. You could actually rip the hook through his mouth. You can lose him. So the law is a tool. The law is like the, the fishing stuff itself. And the church, the state, those in authority, when they use the law, they have to use it like a fishing reel. So we like the virtue of chastity. And the world, to a very small extent, does at least recognize that this is good. So we bait the hook by showing what a good marriage is. We send it out into the world. And then we have to be clear in what the moral expectations of this is. Love your wife as Christ loved the church, right? And we need to set the hook. We need to pull. But we can't pull so hard that it leaves, right? That's what we have to do on the, the great bark of Peter, the boat, which is the church. So Aquinas and Augustine, they were fishers of men. They knew how to catch people. They knew that if they set too high of a moral standard, it would like be pulling the, the real too hard. And that they would just tear out the, the consciences of the fish, which initially latched on, and then they would be in a worse fate, and then they'd just be injured and die. 
that's what Moses knew. Moses knew that if he said that, no, you cannot divorce your wife under any circumstances, not okay. Well, he knew that that would just rip their, their mouths open. They would murder. They would do all sorts of terrible things. These were good fishers of men. And this is the way we must use laws today. What I am describing is freedom. Um, we have many more cages, pages to cover, so I'm going to have to hurry up. But I think you see that laws are tools, that we ought to use them with wisdom in order to draw people to the truth. We ought to leave some freedom for the fish to swim so that we can catch them. That's the role of setting the drag, of letting them swim, of tiring themselves out. That freedom is the intermediate between letting them go and then losing them off because we pulled too hard. So we need to keep that law in the zone of proximal moral development, just like we're fishing, not move too fast. Otherwise, it will backfire and we'll get something worse than we otherwise would. Back to the document. Truth, however, is to be sought after in a manner proper to the dignity of the human person and his social nature. The inquiry is to be free carried on with the aid of teaching or instruction, communication, and dialogue, in the course of which men explain to one another the truth they have discovered, or think they have discovered, in order thus to assist one another in the quest for truth. Moreover, as the truth is discovered, it is by a personal assent that men are to adhere to it. And I like this point, that it's a good thing that we are, we are social truths seekers and that we ought to communicate, dialogue, open this up, that not just have that psychological freedom, but have that external freedom where we can actually speak about these ideas. Because lies can always be destroyed, but the truth cannot be. So ultimately, we believe it can be prevail, it can prevail, specifically given the promises of Christ and the message of the gospel and the injunction to go out and preach to all men. All right, back to the document. On his part, man perceives and acknowledges the imperatives of the divine law through the mediation of conscience. In all his activity, a man is bound to follow his conscience in order that he may come to God, the end and purpose of life. It follows that he is not to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his conscience, nor, on the other hand, is he to be restrained from acting in accordance with his conscience, especially in matters religious. The reason is that the exercise of religion, of its very nature, consists before all else, all else in those internal, voluntary, and free acts, whereby man sets the course of his life directly towards God. No merely human power can either command or prohibit acts of this kind. The social nature of man, however, itself requires that he should give external expression to his internal acts of religion, that he should share with others in matters religious, that he should profess his religion and community. Injury, therefore, is done to the human person and to the very order established by God for human life if the free exercise of religion is denied in society, provided that public order is observed. Yeah, I think that makes sense and fits with the analogy we talked to earlier with the unforgivable sin, with the beginning of the gospel message, starting with Mary and her yes, the role in accepting the voice of conscience. Yeah. 
There is a future consider, further consideration. The religious acts whereby men in private and in public and out of a sense of personal conviction direct their lives to God transcend by their very nature the order of terrestrial and temporal affairs. Government, therefore, ought in t- indeed to take account of the religious life of the citizenry and show it favor since the function of government is to make provision for the common welfare. Oh, I like that. So it's meant to show favor to religion because of the common welfare. I like that. Good stuff. However, it would clearly transgress the limit set to its power were it to presume to command or inhibit acts that are religious. So showing favor is good. Commanding religious acts is wrong. Because it, it, well, I mean, forced religion stinks in the in the nostrils of God, to quote Roger Williams. Because commanding religious acts is shutting down that space of freedom. It can rip the hook right out of the mouth of man. To inhibit religious practices would be wrong. It would be wrong to swat the pearls out of the merchant's hand, to tell the guy in the field to get off my lawn, to keep the net from ever sinking into the sea, lest it be lost out of sight, caught by something unseen, or return without a catch. We ought to let the Jewish person look through the law and the prophets, what is old, in order to find the treasures of Christ to let those look for the company of good men, to find ultimately the assembly of believers. This is saying that the state can show favor to Catholicism, but it has to open up a free space, the proper environment befitting our human nature, the rightful environment, the one that we have a right to, in which human beings can operate as truth seekers when we have not yet found the pearl of great price, or the treasure hidden in the humanity, the the divinity hidden in the humanity of Jesus Christ. We've not found that yet. We need to let people search. The freedom or immunity from coercion in matters religious, which is the endowment of persons as individuals, is also to be recognized as their right when they act in community. Religious communities are a requirement of the social nature, both of man and of religion itself. I like this restriction. There is something unique about a communal religion, which is not unique, which is not really found in um, individual acts of religiosity. You have people with very quirky views, and then you have whole religious groups with quirky views, and they're really not the same. One, I think we have to have a little bit more respect for, and that would be the ones which are done in community. I think there is something which more closely approximates natural law religion when we at very least take our views, however wrong they are, gather in community around a common person than when we have these weird idiosyncratic lungings of the intellect and will and then we somehow demand that these are tolerated in the public or religious square. These things are not entirely the same and I think that the document is affirming that. Provided the just demands of public order are observed, something that's been repeated a bunch of times, I would say, so this is not unqualified, anyways, religious communities rightfully claim freedom in order that they may govern themselves according to their own norms, honor the supreme beings in public worship, assist their members in the practice of the religious life, strengthened 
by instruction and promote institutions in which they may join together for the purpose of ordering their own lives in accordance with their religious principles. Religious communities also have the right not to be hindered either by legal measures or by administrative action on the part of the government in the selection, training, appointment, and transferal of their own ministers in communicating with religious authorities and communities abroad, in erecting buildings for religious purposes, and in the acquisition and the use of suitable funds or properties. Right now, the suitable funds and properties part is under attack. It's under attack because many people want to tax churches, which is a terrible idea. In um, McCulloch versus Maryland in 1819, Justice Marshall ruled, the power to tax involves the power to destroy. And I think that this document clearly teaches that no state should hold the power. It, doesn't, it has no right to destroy religion. Instead, earlier, we said that it can actually do things for religion. Religious communities also have the right not to be hindered in their public teaching and witness to their faith, whether by the spoken or the written word. However, in spreading religious faith and in introducing religious practices everywhere ought at all times to refrain from any manner of action that might seem to carry a hint of coercion or of a kind of persuasion that would be dishonorable or unworthy, especially when dealing with poor or uneducated people. Such a manner of action would have to be considered an abuse of one's right and a violation of the rights of others. This is an interesting and subtle point that I think is very often missed. There is something sick and predatory about groups that proselytize the poor by making them choose between poverty and help plus their particular brand of religion. Now, you see this sometimes with the Jehovah's Witnesses that go into poor communities and they begin with the tactic of what's called love bombing where they'll go in the winter and say, oh my goodness, you don't have a warm coat. Here, let me get you this. And, and oh, your kids, oh, let me set them up with stuff too. And they begin with the love bomb. They make you indebted to them. And then they start to ask things of you like, hey, come to our whatever or read our tracks or join our this, join our that. There's something twisted about even in this nice way persuading them by making them choose between a poor or diminished state and help plus their particular brand. I think what we're meant to do as Christians is to help people, full stop, to share the gospel, full stop, to not make help somehow contingent on accepting our faith. Instead, to show an entirely selfless love even to an ungrateful or enemy people. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He went to the cross for people who did not love him, for people who did not understand him. And he prayed from the cross that God would forgive even their ignorance and pride. That's what we have to do. Um, and of course, coercion needs to be off the table. And finally, um, we can't use dishonorable or unworthy tactics. And I think this would involve using dishonest apologetics. Sometimes any of us can be a wee bit sloppy. But if we know that we have an argument that's not entirely above board, but it's persuasive, kick it out. Nope. 
We need to be very honest intellectually, very honest in the ways we approach people, particularly the uneducated and the poor. We need to make things clear. We need to be loving, self-sacrificial. There is no, 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 no room for coercion, for dishonorable, unworthy types of actions toward these people or violating their rights as real truth seekers to the extent they are able. We need to assist them in this. We need to bless them irrespective of whether or not they would choose our particular brand of religion, even if ours is, and it is, the only right one. I think that's just plain old more effective, too. People can smell an agenda from a thousand miles away. In addition, it comes within the meaning of religious freedom that religious communities should not be prohibited from freely undertaking to show the special value of their doctrine in what concerns the organizations of society and the inspiration of the whole of human activity. Finally, the social nature of man and the very nature of religion afford the foundation of the right of men freely to hold meetings and to establish educational, cultural, charitable, and social organizations under the impulse of their own religious sense. If you, I think this is a lot of people we could get to agree. Even secular people in general, we can get them to agree to some form of religious freedom that, hey, we should all be able to establish educational, cultural, charitable, social organizations. Come on, right? And this is typically the move. And we'll learn later that some of this is subject to cultural context, I think towards the end somewhere. Um, the vast majority of history, if we could get this concession, the church has the freedom to work. We can't just read this as other religions get to do these things. We also need to read it as other religions will exert their political power to let us do these things if we could exert our political power to allow them to do these things. This is a pretty darn stable equilibrium. It's not a stable equilibrium to have a state which enforces or closes off the ability for certain religions, I, I mean, like inside the course of due limits, because that could easily be turned against us. And that happens all the time. The family, since it is a society in its own original right, has the right freely to live its own domestic religious life under the guidance of their own beliefs. The kind of religious education that their children are to receive government, in consequence, must acknowledge the right of the parents to make a genuinely free choice of schools and of other means of education. And the use of this freedom of choice is not to be made a reason for imposing unjust burdens on the parents, whether directly or indirectly, because the right of the parents are violated if their children are forced to attend lessons or instructions which are not in agreement with their religious beliefs or if a single system of education from which all religious format is excluded is imposed upon them all. This is public education. Public education in America was pretty much designed, no, it was explicitly designed to stamp out Catholic schools, to give a completely free option. And then we raise taxes, we have high cost of living with things, and it makes it practically impossible for Catholics to send their kid to Catholic school because they're already paying taxes to send them to a public school. So it is just plain old the only right thing to do to allow parents to spend their tax dollars not just on somebody else's public school education but to receive that back so that they can exercise their religious liberty 
to spend their dollars on their own kids' education, which is in line with their values. It is evil that we take money from people and we put it only in a, oh, what's the word? in a single system of education from which all religious formation is excluded. That is actively evil. It's condemned by the church. So the system of public education as it stands, I see as violating the principles here in this Declaration of Religious Liberty. Um, So we as Catholics have to move for educational choice for the money that would have gone to the public schools to go to Catholic parents to spend in accord with their own religious values. Because other than that, then we have an unjust burden on parents directly, to quote this section here. All right, um, let's keep going. Since the common welfare of society consists in the entirety of those conditions of social life, under which men enjoy the possibility of achieving their own perfection in a certain fullness of measure and also with some relative ease. It chiefly consists in the protection of the rights and in the performance of the duties of the human person. Therefore, the care of the right to religious freedom devolves upon the whole citizenry, upon social groups, upon government, and upon the church and other religious communities in virtue of the duty of all towards the common welfare and in the manner proper to each. The protection and promotion of the inviolable rights of man ranks among the essential duties of the government. So for those who think that there's no such thing as rights of man, that everything is just simply derivative of the common good and that governments don't actually exist to protect rights, well, you're wrong. And it says right here. Therefore, government is to assume the safeguard of the religious freedom of all its citizens in an effective manner by just laws and by other appropriate means. Government is also to help create conditions favorable to the fostering of religious life in order that the people may be truly enabled to exercise their religious rights and to fulfill their religious duties, and also in order that society itself may profit by the moral qualities of justice and peace which have their origins in men's faithfulness to God and to his holy will. If, in view of peculiar circumstances obtaining among people, special civil recognition is given to one religious community in the constitutional order of society, it is at the same time imperative that the right of all citizens and religious communities to religious freedom should be recognized and made effective in practice, right? So we can have, you could have special recognition of a Catholic state, bang. We just can't collapse everybody's Uh, freedom of religion. We can't stop them from being truth seekers. We can't swat the pearls out of their hand. Finally, government is to see to it that equality of citizens before the law, which is itself an element of the common good, is never violated, whether openly or covertly, for religious reasons. Nor is there to be any discrimination among citizens. Uh, Yeah, this is straight up Leviticus 24-22. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native-born. I am the Lord your God. It follows that a wrong is done when the government imposes upon its people by force or fear or other means the profession or repudiation of any religion, or when it hinders men from joining or leaving a religious community, 
All the more is it a violation of the will of God and of the sacred rights of the person and of the family of nations when force is brought to bear in any way in order to destroy or repress religion, either in the whole of mankind or in a particular country or in a definite community. Guys, right now we have the diversity, equity, and inclusion training, which is religious um, in nature and is being forced upon people by the government. People are being forced to use certain pronouns. People are being forced to accept certain religious tenets. It's not the true religion. It's a very evil religion. And um, that's condemned right here. The government cannot do that. Um, I think that it's suppressing Christianity quite actively. In schools, you can't read the Bible. Instead, other religious literature for LGBTQ things. I see that as a religious impulse. That's being supported. So we as Catholics need to fight this battle. It's not a, oh, that's just a culture war. No, no, no. This is the war. Um, we need to bring truth. We need to change the state such that it is a friend to the true religion. It is fair to other religions. It opens up a space of freedom, not a space for for anarchy, but a space for freedom. That place on the line where the bark of Peter is pulling in fish, ideally giving just enough room to run, but then still setting the hook and drawing them into heaven ultimately. That's what we want. And we need a state that helps us in this. The right to religious freedom is exercised in human society. Hence, its exercise is subject to certain regulatory norms. In the use of all freedoms, the moral principle of personal and social responsibility is to be observed. In the exercise of their rights, individual men and social groups are bound by the moral law to have respect both for the rights of others and for their own duties towards others and for the common welfare of all. Men are to deal with their, their fellows in justice and civility, which I think is great. This document is wonderful could use an editor because it's kind of repeated itself, but we're almost done. Furthermore, society has the right to defend itself against possible abuses committed on the pretext of religious freedom. It is the special duty of government to provide this protection. However, government is not to act in an arbitrary fashion or in an unfair spirit of partisanship. Its action is to be controlled by judicial norms, which are in conformity with the objective moral order. These norms arise out of the need for the effective safeguard of the rights of all citizens and for the peaceful settlement of conflicts of rights. Also out of the need for an adequate care of the genuine public peace, which comes about when men live together in good order and in true justice. And finally, out of the need for a proper guardianship of public morality. So I think abortion would be a great example where the government is falling down on its special duty of protection, where it is not providing for the common good, and it needs to jump in because there is an objectivity to the moral order, and it's given proper guardianship of public morality. And it's failing in this in many regards, but this is a way that we ought to hold the state to account. Back to the document. I know I said that a bunch of times. I'll come up with a different term. Back to the bat cave. There you go. These matters constitute the basic component of the common welfare. They are what is meant by public order. For the rest, the usages of society are to be the usages of freedom in their full range. That is, the freedom of man is to be respected as far as possible and is not to be curtailed except when and insofar as necessary. It's interesting. That is a endorsement, a ringing endorsement so strong I almost want to read it in my George W. voice. Freedom, vigilance. But I won't, because we got more to read. That's right, freedom. 
Many pressures are brought to bear upon the men of the, our day to the point where the danger arises, lest they lose the possibility of acting on their own judgment. On the other hand, not a few can be found who seem inclined to use the name of freedom as a pretext for refusing to submit to authority and for making light of the duty of obedience. Wherefore, this Vatican Council urges everyone, especially those who are charged with the task of educating others, to do their utmost to form men who, on the one hand, will respect the moral order and be obedient to lawful authority, and, on the other hand, will be lovers of true freedom, men, in other words, who will come to decisions of their own judgment and in the light of truth, govern their activities with a sense of responsibility and strive after what is true and right, willing always to join with others in a cooperative effort. So we have a dual mandate, respect the moral order, be lovers of freedom, um, we have to accept lawful authority, but we also have to work to be um, judges of our own in light of the authentic truth, to govern our activities with a sense of responsibility to the common good and to our own soul, right? All right, so religious freedom, therefore, ought to have this further purpose and aim, namely that men may come to act with a greater responsibility in fulfilling their duties in communal life. The declaration of this Vatican Council on the right of man to religious freedom has its foundation in the dignity of the person whose eccentricities have come to be are fully known to human reason through the centuries of experience. What is more, the doctrine of freedom has roots in divine revelation, and for this reason Christians are bound to respect it all the more conscientiously. Revelation does not indeed affirm it in so many words, the right of man to immunity from external coercion in religious matters. It does, however, disclose the dignity of the human person in its full dimensions. It gives evidence of the respect which Christ showed towards the freedom with which man is to fulfill his duty of belief in the word of God. And it gives us lessons in the spirit which disciples us as such a master ought to adopt and continually follow. Thus, further light is cast upon the general principles upon which the doctrine of this declaration on religious freedom is based. In particular, religious freedom in society is entirely consistent with a freedom on the act of Christian faith. It is one of the major tenets of Christian doctrine that man's response to God in faith must be free. No one, therefore, is to be forced to embrace the Christian life against his own will. This doctrine is contained in the word of God, and it was constantly proclaimed by the fathers of the church. The act of faith is of its very nature a free act. Man, redeemed by Christ the Savior and through Christ Jesus, called to be God's adopted son, cannot give his adherence to God revealed, revealing through himself unless under the drawing of the Father he offers to God the reasonable and free submission of faith. It is therefore completely in accord with the nature of faith that in matters religious every manner of coercion on the part of man should be excluded. In consequence, the principle of religious freedom makes no small contribution to the creation of an environment in which men can without hindrance be invited to the Christian faith, embrace it of their own free will, and profess it effectively in their whole manner of life. Okay. The goal of this universe, dear listeners, is not to manufacture goodness. God was not sitting around thinking, you know, need a little bit more goodness in reality. He had plenty. Instead, 
What God did was to make an artistic act of self-revelation, whereby God, who is love, um, allows free creatures to enter into his own love by sending his love through them back to him. He wishes for a free and beautiful response of love that reverberates through our whole lives, past to present to future. We are like the strings of a harp, each plucked at a different time and place, and each meant to respond in our own unique way to the touch of our one God. So, story time, and I promise this relates. When I was but a wee child, my family decided to give a gift to my grandparents for their 50th anniversary, and the gift was a beautiful hand-painted landscape. And to my chagrin, the artist, who I thought did an awesome job, told all the grandkids that we could come and emphasize with paint, like actual paint on the thing, a certain aspect of the, cam of the canvas. Unfortunately, we went from oldest to youngest, and me being the youngest had to go very, very last. So other people got cool things. I got like some lame tulip. But I actually thought this entire thing was a bad idea, and I wasn't even sure I wanted to participate because I knew that I was not an artist. And I knew that all of my cousins were not artists. I knew that we were all children. <laughs> and that even if the artist hands me a paintbrush with the right color and shows me exactly how to do it, I'm still gonna probably screw it up. And what on earth is my contribution really adding? I'm only able to make it worse than the actual artist. And why am I even emphasizing? And what does even emphasizing mean in, in this beautiful work of art here. Like, why would it matter that I emphasized a specific tulip versus another tulip versus a whatever, a tree? Well, to my surprise, when my grandparents got the picture, they loved it. But they didn't just love it because it was a good picture. They loved it because it had this unique, personal um, edition of each one of their beloved grandkids. And they loved that, oh, yeah, Megan over here emphasized this, you know, Jared over here emphasized that, Jake over here emphasized this thing. That made them happy. And they didn't think for a minute, oh, well, Jake got a lame tulip, so that's not as good. They were just happy that I was able to emphasize, to make a little mark, even if it was an unimportant mark. This, I think, is how God views creation. He made an artistic work, and now he brings us, his children, to him. And we sit there with a paintbrush, and he says, go ahead, anywhere you like, emphasize something in my beautiful created order. He lets us do that, and then he loves it. And that's a gift that we give to God. So freedom is, yes, the Thomistic concept of being free to do the good. Yes, yes, yes. But it's also that more modern concept that we are free to choose a variety of different good things. Some which are even higher goods and some which are lower goods at different times and places. And the goal is not just to somehow maximize the total amount of goodness as if God needed more of it. He's the maximum of goodness. Instead, it's to impress our very personhood into the creation that God made out of love for him to emphasize the good things that he has put on offer to us. That's how I see it. So that's how I see creaturely freedom. And that's what I see certain, oh goodness, certain people of other religions. They're wrong. 
they should be doing things right. They're scribbling on the painting, but I think God's patient. And God, at least, if he sees that they are earnestly following their conscience, they are trying very hard, even though they are objectively wrecking his painting. (laughs) They're messing it up. It is not as true. It is not as beautiful. It does give a little mark of who they are. And there's an extent to which God loves even that. Now, they need to come all the way into the Catholic Church. Salvation is only through his church. But I think that this clarifies a little bit of the religious freedom question. It's freedom not just to make the objectively highest order action at all times and everywhere, but it is freedom to live a true, authentic human life at the time and place that God has put us, given the goods on offer, to choose one to emphasize for our will to make efficacious this one choice versus another, even if the choices are equal or even some higher, some lower, because God loves us and he loves our participation in creation. That's why he gives us this type of freedom in addition to the more Thomistic sense of freedom as well. Back to the article. God calls men to serve him in spirit and truth. Hence they are bound in conscience, but they stand under no compulsion. God has regard for the dignity of the human person whom he himself created, and man is to be guided by his own judgment, and he is to enjoy freedom. This truth appears at the height in Jesus Christ, in whom God manifested himself and his ways with men. Christ is at once our master and our Lord, and also meek and humble of heart. In attracting and inviting his disciples, he used patience. He wrought miracles to illuminate his teaching and to establish its truth. But his intention was to rouse faith in his hearers and to confirm them in faith, not to exert coercion upon them. He did indeed denounce the unbelief of those who listened to him. But he left vengeance to God in expectation of the day of judgment. When he sent his apostles into the world, he said to them, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. But he himself, noting that the tares have been sown amid the wheat, gave orders that both should be allowed to grow until the harvest time, which will come at the end of the world. He refused to be a political messiah ruling by force. He preferred to call himself the son of man who came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He showed himself the perfect servant of God who does not break the bruised reed nor extinguish the smoking flax. I've talked in a number of episodes about how Jesus is a twofold Messiah. He comes twice, first to found a church and then to find, found a government. All of the true prophetic stuff about the government being on his shoulders, his ruling this governmental political way is absolutely going to happen. It's just the second coming. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll leave that there because you probably heard it before, but let's talk about the wheat and the tares, which I think are last Sunday's readings. Basically, this is like very timely. So the wheat and the tares can absolutely be viewed as individual people. So some people are wheat, some people are tares, and that is certainly true in the primary um, meaning of this passage, it seems. However, um, we also know that there's a there's a sense in which it happens in our hearts, that we have wheat and tares in our hearts. So let's say you are a Muslim. I think that you, quite objectively speaking, have a lot of tares in your heart, a lot of falsehoods, because you're not part of the true faith. But there's also some wheat there. And 
we have to allow a certain space of freedom and not demand immediate conformity to the truth because it could be that if we try to rip up the tear that is your belief in the Quran, we might accidentally destroy the roots of the wheat that is the belief of yours in the one God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or maybe ripping up the tears of superstition from the hearts of a New Age adherent might end up ripping up the wheat of the recognition of the supernatural itself. <clears throat> so God could have very good reason not to pull so hard to rip the bait out of the mouth of the fish, but instead to allow this space of freedom. It's because of the wheat and the tares. Goodness gracious, does this go on forever? Okay, let's keep reading. He acknowledged the power of government and its rights when he commanded that tribute be given to Caesar, but he gave clear warning that the higher rights of God are to be kept inviolate. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. In the end, when he, complete, when he completed on the cross the work of his redemption, whereby he achieved salvation and true freedom for men, he brought his revelation to completion, for he bore witness to the truth. But he refused to impose the truth by force on those who spoke against it. Not by the force of blows does he, his rule exert its claims. It is established by witnessing to the truth and by hearing the truth, and extends his dominion by the love whereby Christ, lifted up on the cross, draws all men to himself. That's a great paragraph. Taught by the word and example of Christ, the apostles followed the same way. From the very origins of the church, the disciples of Christ strove to convert men to faith in Christ as the Lord, not, however, by the use of coercion or of devices unworthy of the gospel, but by the power, above all, of the word of God. Steadfastly, they proclaimed to all the plan of God, our Savior, who wills that all men will be saved and come to the acknowledgement of the truth. At the same time, however, they showed respect for those of weaker stuff, even though they were in error. And thus, they made it plain to them that each of us is to re render to God an account of himself, and for that reason is bound to obey his conscience. Think, I think it's referencing the section with the... Uh, uh, food sacrifice to idols, probably. Like Christ himself, the apostles were unceasingly bent upon bearing witness to the truth of God, and they showed the fullest uh, measure of boldness in speaking the word with confidence. Before the people and their rulers, with a firm faith, they held that the gospel is indeed the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Therefore, they rejected all carnal weapons. They followed the example of the gentleness and respectfulness of Christ, and they preached the word of God in the full confidence that there was resident in his word itself, a divine power able to destroy all the forces arrayed against God and bring men to faith in Christ and to his servants. As the master, so too the apostles recognized legitimate civil authorities, for there is no power except from God, the apostle teaches, and therefore commands, let everyone be subject to higher authorities. He who resists authority resists God's ordinance. At the same time, however, they did not hesitate to speak out against the governing authorities, which set themselves in opposition to the holy will of God. It is necessary to obey God rather than men, Acts 5, 29. This is the way along which the martyrs and other faithful have walked through all ages and over the whole earth. So there you go. When we open up religious liberty, we can do this because we know we 
have something that nobody else has. And that is the saving power of the gospel, which is ignited with the power of the Holy Spirit itself to transform hearts. Something that Islam, something that that Buddhism, something that Hinduism, all these things don't have. We have. They don't. So when we open up religious liter- uh, liberty, that's going to be a win. All right. Um, almost done. In faithfulness, therefore, to the truth of the gospel, the church is following the way of Christ and the apostles when she recognizes and gives support to the principle of religious freedom as befitting the dignity of man and as being in accord with divine revelation. Throughout the ages, the church has kept safe and handed on the doctrine received from the master and from the apostles in the life of the people of God as it has made its pilgrim way through the vicissitudes of human history. There has at times appeared a way of acting that was hardly in accord with the spirit of the gospel or even opposed or even opposed to it. Nevertheless, the doctrine of the church that no one is to be coerced into the faith has always stood firm. All right, let's take a brief break here and we will finish out the rest of this and then we will do a rapid fire freedom group of questions which i hope you guys enjoy thus the leaven of of the gospel has long been about its quiet work in the minds of men and to it is due in great measure the fact that in the course of time men have come more widely to recognize their dignity as persons And the conviction has grown stronger that the person in society is to be kept free from all manner of coercion and religious matters. Among the things that concern the good of the church and indeed the welfare of society here on earth, things, therefore, that are always and everywhere to be kept secure and defended against all injury, this certainly is preeminent. Namely, that the church should enjoy that full measure of freedom which her care for the salvation of souls requires. This is a sacred freedom. Because the only begotten Son endowed with it the church which he purchased with his blood. Indeed, it is so much the property of the church that to act against it is to act against the will of God. The freedom of the church is the fundamental principle in in what concerns the relations between the church and governments and the whole civil order. There you go. Glad we included that quote in this here episode on church and state. Let me read that last bit before. So it's, recall, it's because of the connection of Jesus Christ, God himself, to his church, that the freedom of the church is the fundamental principle in what concerns the relation between church and governments and the whole civil Order. I think we learned that in the history of, of uh, Israel with the Exodus, that there's the Pharaoh, there's his power, there's the power of God and the power of the false gods. There's all of these things swirling around. But what is ultimately important is the freedom to go out and to worship irrespective of whatever earthly power um, would have dictated, whatever civil order might say. The preeminent principle is the freedom of his church throughout the ages to worship. In human society and in the face of governments, the church claims freedom for herself in her character as a spiritual authority established by Christ the Lord upon 
which their rests by mandate, the duty of going out into the whole world and preaching the gospel to every creature. The church also claims freedom for herself in her character as a society of men who have the right to live in society in accordance with the precepts of the Christian faith. So, ideally, we would have a state which favors Catholicism, but is fair to all. Other states would then be open to religious liberty so that we can fulfill our mandate to go and spread the gospel without states stopping us. In turn, where the principle of religious freedom is not only proclaimed in words or simply incorporated in law, but also given sincere and practical application, there the church succeeds in achieving a stable situation of right as well as fact and the independence which is necessary for the fulfillment of her divine mission. This independence is precisely what the authorities of the church claim in society. At the same time, the Christian faithful, in common with all other men, possess the civil right not only to be hindered, uh, not to be hindered in leading their lives in accordance with their consciences. Therefore, a harmony exists between the freedom of the church and the religious freedom which is to be recognized as the right of all men and communities and sanctioned by constitutional law. In order to be faithful to the divine command to teach all the nations, the Catholic Church must work with all urgency and concern that the word of God be spread abroad and glorified. Hence, the Church earnestly begs all of its children that first of all, supplications, prayers, petitions, acts of thanksgiving be made for all men. For this is good and agreeable in the sight of God, our Savior, who wills that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In the formation of their consciences, the Christian faithful ought carefully to attend to the sacred and certain doctrine of the Church. For the Church is, by the will of Christ, the teacher of the truth. It is her duty to give utterance to and authority to teach that truth which is Christ himself, and also to declare and confirm by her authority those principles of the moral order which have their origins in human nature itself. Furthermore, let Christians walk in wisdom in the faith of those outside, in the Holy Spirit, in unaffected love, in the word of truth, and let them be about their task of spreading the light of life with all confidence and apostolic courage, even to the shedding of their blood. The disciple is bound by a grave obligation towards Christ, his master, even more fully to understand the truth received from him, faithfully to proclaim it and to vigorously defend it. Never be it understood, having recourse to means that are incompatible with the spirit of the gospel. At the same time, the charity of Christ urges him to love and to have prudence and patience in his dealings with those who are in error or in ignorance with regard to the faith. All is to be taken into account, the Christian duty to Christ, the life-giving word which must be proclaimed, the rights of the human person, and the measure of grace granted by God through Christ to men who are invited freely to accept and profess the faith. The fact is that men of the present age want to be able freely to profess their religion in private and public. Indeed, religious freedom has already been declared to be a civil right in many constitutions, and it is solemnly recognized in international documents. The further fact is that forms of government still exist under which, even though freedom of religious worship receives constitutional recognition, the powers of government are engaged in the effort to deter citizens from the profession of religion and to make life very difficult and dangerous for religious communities. 
This council greets with joy the first of these two facts, as among the signs of the times. With sorrow, however, it denounces the other fact as only to be deplored. The council exhorts Catholics, and it directs a plea to all men most carefully to consider how greatly necessary religious freedom is, especially in the present condition of the human family. All nations are being brought into closer unity. Men of different cultures and religions are being brought together in closer relationships. There's growing con consciousness of the personal responsibility that every man has. All this is evident. Consequently, in order that relationships of peace and harmony be established and maintained within the whole of mankind, it is necessary that religious freedom be everywhere provided with an effective constitutional guarantee and that respect be shown for the high duty and right of man freely to lead his religious life in society. Yeah, so I think this is also couched as a good, wise, prudential judgment in light of globalization, in light of the uh, uh, the need for peace internationally, and in light, of course, for uh, enabling the spread of the Gospels to the ends of the earth. And it seems to end with a prayer. So this last bit reads like a prayer. You could pray it if you want. May then God and Father of all grant that the human family, through careful observance of the principles of religious freedom in society, be brought by the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to the sublime and unending and glorious freedom of the sons of God. All right. Well, as always, I am quite um, pleasantly surprised with church documents. Sometimes you hear all sorts of things about them, but I think this is very good, very balanced. I think it offers um, not just a categorically open freedom based on anybody's conscience, but one which is restricted by, um, by truth, by justice, by fairness, by um, the good of the common good, by the nature of man. It named many, many things. I like that it, um, it uh, pulled on the old and kind of the newer conception of freedom, and it showed how both types of freedom are necessary and fulfilled by Christ and offered to us as we seek to emulate his life in our particular time and place. All right, well, let's wrap up with a rapid-fire question and answer round on freedom. First, what is freedom? Well, we gave those two definitions. One is freedom to do the good, the type of goods which are befitting our nature. And also, it is a freedom to choose from a variety of options absent of coercion. Both of these are necessary in the moral life. Does absolute freedom look like anarchy? No. Actually, it's the mean between tyranny and anarchy. Think back to the fish analogy. What we have with freedom is actually something that serves virtue. It doesn't leave us to anarchy. It doesn't oppress us with tyranny. Instead, it makes a moral space, one that we actually have a right to, one which is our proper place, one which is our natural environment, one in which we can seek God. Is freedom only a means to an end, or is it a good in and of itself? Well, it seems to be good because Jesus had it, and if Jesus had it, it's endowed with an incredible dignity. So God, because, um, because he loves our lives from start to finish, he also loves what is old. He loves that search. He loves the fact that we have that freedom and that freedom to ultimately find him and to love him so that our whole lives from start to finish resonate like that harp string that was touched by his grace. Is freedom, um, if freedom is, oh, here we go. If freedom is good and laws curtail freedom, then are laws good? Well, 
laws curtail freedom in one sense, but not the second. So recall, laws are teachers. Laws um, bar off certain evil actions. Laws create certain habits. So Aquinas argues that laws actually help freedom in that Thomistic sense, that it helps us pursue the good by, by habit. Um, laws do curtain off certain possibilities. So in the second sense of freedom, yeah, that's true. But it does, even in that sense, offer ultimately an aspirational standard if they're in the zone of proximal moral development so that we can, amongst our options, choose something which is higher. How do we know if a law is too lenient or too strict? Well, if it backfires, then it's too strict. So that's what Aquinas, that's what Proverbs, that's what Augustine were all talking about when they were discussing the issue of prostitution. They were talking what happens if it backfires. So the law would be too strict in their case. Um, or in Moses's case, the law about divorce was too strict. So it backfired. People were killing their wives instead. So too strict is when we see it backfire and create a bigger harm than what would be in place with the law in place. Too lenient looks like it's no longer restraining evil, and it's teaching people that they can do evil without retribution. Should all mortal sins be illegal? No. Now, there are certain things that we actively do, like going to Mass, and not going to Mass would be a mortal sin. So, you have to confess that, guys, for sure. Go to Mass. Um, we shouldn't make that. That would be making moral, or making religious behavior comp compulsory, and we certainly learned that's not something that's okay. On the other hand, we have things like don't murder. So instead of do go to mass, we have don't murder. Now that's a mortal sin, which would make a great law. Do not murder. Thou shall not murder, if you will. So I'd say that's the easy way to draw the line. Doesn't always work. But in general, um, mortal sins, which affect the common good, um, especially ones where if we um, prohibit it, we don't get a huge backfire. Yeah, those would make sense. What if we use freedom to pursue lower instead of higher goods? Is that ever okay? Yes, it is okay because we are not good maximizers. We are participating with God, the ultimate artist, not the ultimate mass manufacturer. We are meant to give our whole selves to God. And that means start to finish in the times where we know things and the times that we don't. When we are wise, when we are foolish, the entire shebang. We have to grow in wisdom and knowledge just like Jesus did, offer our whole selves to him at times emphasizing that stupid little tulip and at times emphasizing something much greater. Should the church allow the freedom to celebrate the Latin mass? Well, this is certainly a can of worms, but I would say, yes, it should. I know that Pope Francis at times has been sour on the TLM, but I would remind him of a little document called Dignitates Humanes, which says we ought to respect this, um, this space of religious freedom to assemble as these groups, et cetera, et cetera. You just heard the document. Should the church allow the freedom for Catholics to register as Democrats? Now, this is a hard one, and I plan to do an entire episode on can a Catholic be a Democrat? Now, because I woke up on the right side of the bed today, I might say that in certain cases, yes, we ought to tolerate the fact that people could be registered Democrats, but I, re I retain the right to change my mind on that one. We learned earlier that the net of the church draws up good and bad fish, that the field grows both wheat and tares. And it could be 
that if we try to rip out of the hearts of people the tears of socialism, gender ideology, pro-abortion, unjust evil economic policies, uh, violations of subsidiarity, etc., that we could end up ripping out of the wheat of uh, properly ordered social action or sincere religiosity or love for the church. So we ought to proceed with caution. We are not just to willy-nilly rip up tares. And if these people are in our church and yet have things which they love, which are, are bad, and they identify with a group which is, is proposing and supporting violence towards the unborn and a myriad of other things which are certainly in opposition to the teaching of the church, well, then maybe we ought to deal with the fish in our nets with a bit of patience, with urgency, of course, so patience so that we can't expect them to act immediately for the good, but urgently that we ought to be immediately praying and correcting our brothers and sisters in Christ because we want them to sell all the other pearls and grab the pearl of great price. How and why should the church allow theological consent or descent? Well, on non-dogmatic issues, I think there is a place for respectful disagreement on non-dogmatic things. Now, this can't be in a spirit of rebellion or revolt or pride or activism, and it's laid out in um, Donis Veritates. Um, So you can say, for instance, disagree on the modern stance on the death penalty, and you are free to do so under certain restrictions. The proof is that prior to the change in the prudential judgment about the death penalty, well, then the people who are currently being favored were in place to bring their position into favor. So clearly, you can have a place for theologians who dissent on non-dogmatic issues and are seeking to um, bring about some type of change. Not a doctrinal change, not something like that, but something which is a prudential judgment, discipline, all that stuff. I don't know. Go see Michael Lofton for details. Should the state make, say, pornography or drugs illegal? Well, you are free to search amongst the pearls, not amongst dung. You are free to fish for, for fish, but not for snakes. So if there is no good to be had somewhere, then there's no way for freedom to operate. There is, we are free in order to be truth seekers. So in a place of only lies, no, there's no freedom to operate. You're free to be a good seeker. So if there's no good somewhere, well, then you can't, you don't have freedom there because freedom is about being a good seeker. So we say pornography or certain types of drugs. Well, there's nothing good to get there. So no, we should curtail that freedom. That is only a danger. Um, yeah. Let's see. Um, now, this kind of proposes the principle that based on how virtuous the people in general are, we should expand and contract the space of liberty with law. So um, there was a time prior to, uh, prior to prohibition that people were abusing alcohol constantly, and it was awful. And people said, hey, I don't think people are virtuous enough to use their freedom wisely to pursue the good in the right ways as it pertains to alcohol. So let's close down this freedom. Now, at this point in history, we think people are, in general, going to find good things with the use of alcohol, and that we are virtuous enough to use it well in aggregate. Therefore, we expand this freedom. So that's the principle we ought to use with law. Expand and contract freedom based on the virtue, based on the ability of people to use the things in creation wisely. Um, oh, let's see. Was, uh, was Christ free? Um, yes, he was actually the most free person possible. You're free, ultimately, 
um, in an internal type of freedom. Yes, there's an external freedom, but if you see, say, the Apology of Socrates or, or the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, you learn that freedom ultimately is your internal freedom. And I think we even got a hint of that in the document that we just read. So fortified with supernatural grace flowing infinitely from his divine nature, his will was positively radioactive with divine life, making his will more free than any other humans that ever walked the earth. Are we free in heaven? Yes, we are the most free. We have habits of virtue. We are free for the good. We are free of sin. We have many options in that we enjoy eternity and the infinite goodness and truth of God himself. We are absent of coercion because of a perfect harmony with the divine will. Um, do, do, do. Yeah, basically, when we pass final judgment, we're going to be like the woman in the story caught in adultery, right? So it starts out with Jesus' teaching, represents the law. Then Jesus takes the place of not just teacher, but judge. He does that by stooping down, by looking at the dust from above, the stance of God himself. Then he places his finger in the dust, and this represents the incarnation, where God himself enters into the dust of humanity. And then he does this sacramentally to write on our hearts, to actually change them from within. That's the whole role of the sacraments. He writes with his divine finger through the incarnation as the judge himself, but the writer of the divine law, to write onto our hearts um, the love that he first showed us and um, offered in sacrifice to his father. So that's the way that he transforms us to go and sin no more. It's those same steps as the woman caught in adultery. And then we go out with joy, and that is heaven. Heaven is joy. It's having been um, touched by God himself, having our hearts transformed. And now we get to enter back into a community in absolute freedom. Are we free in hell? All right, last question. Are we free in hell? Answer to that is kind of. So I believe Aquinas teaches that we're not forced to sin further, right? So we're not compelled to do that. So there's a sense in which we do have options, which we can operate with, the choice to sin or not sin. We commonly choose to sin in hell, I would imagine. But um, yeah, so uh, there's also a sense in which we're very much unfree. Why? Because our will is what makes us free, at least in an internal manner. And then in hell, you're kind of unfree in an external manner. And because our will is evacuated of grace and it's confirmed in sin and it's atrophied in being, that it has a very limited amount of freedom, especially if we compare it to a soul in heaven. Hell is kind of like the worst of anarchy and tyranny. It's like tyranny because we are slaves to sin in hell. And it's like anarchy because we've hidden ourselves from all forms of law which restrain evil, reveal the good, and preserve the common good in peace. All right, well, that wraps it up right there. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something. I hope you uh, came to appreciate that document that I read. I know I did. And I certainly hope that you join me for the grand finale of the entire church and state episode where we're going to be talking about certain forgotten virtue that i think can save the world all right and i will ask you one favor and that is i'm talking to you no 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 to you um write a little review especially on apple Podcasts or spotify or whatever and hit the five star button if you think these types of episodes deserve it um, it helps people find it. And of course, if you want to help somebody find it directly, send this or your favorite episode to a friend right now, or as soon as we're done with this here podcast, that would help me out greatly. And of course, I know I haven't said this in a while. You can always email me 
at thegordianknot101 at gmail.com. Thegordianknot101 at gmail.com with any questions, with any episode suggestions, to let me know how you're evangelizing, to let me know what you're working on. I help out with projects all the time, so you can send me stuff and I'll give you a hand. Whatever you possibly need, I'd love to hear from you guys. So you can always email me at any time. Whew, thanks for listening, guys. Have a great week.